near-death experience podcast, an ongoing exploration of spiritually transformative experiences, including NDEs and other phenomena, in order to elucidate the ineffable and better understand our spirituality. All episodes are available at ndepodcast.org. The views expressed and opinions given by the individual hosts and guests are not necessarily those of NDE Podcast, the NDERF, any sponsors, or for that matter, anyone else. In the end, the only opinion that really matters is yours. Near-Death Experience Podcast, item number 375. January 17th, 2022. The NDEs of Sharon, Benedict, and C.A. Welcome to Near-Death Experience Podcast, the official source of audio accounts for the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. I am Chaz Hathaway, author of Life in the Spirit World, What Near-Death Experiences May Teach About Life on the Other Side, and the music album Home. Today we're going to share, again, three short near-death experiences. They are short, but not lacking in beautiful quality. So we're going to start, and all three of these are from enderf.org, the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation website. The first one is by Sharon. Sharon says, Driving down the road, I was going fast through a curve. My car made a loud braking noise in the back and began to slide. The car started to roll and I was not belted in. I knew for a second that I was upside down. Then I, my head was in the seat with my arms crossed at the chest. I was mashed against the steering wheel with my legs twisted and jammed between the gear shift and the radio. I wriggled free and laid on the ground. I had no sensation of cold despite it being the middle of winter. I had no shoes or socks, no coat, and only a shirt and jeans. I felt no pain, even though my head and face were busted open and the right arm was completely crushed. I felt no pain from the time of the accident until waking up after surgery. As I lay on the ground, I felt myself fading away and the real world landscape was replaced with faraway glowing lights. As I moved closer to the light, I could see it had three black things in it. As I got even closer, the black things lightened into color. They were my deceased mother, grandmother, and dog. We exchanged hellos. I remember feeling sheer joy and excitement and wanting to hug them. I couldn't see myself, but as I moved to touch them, they said that I must not do that as they backed away. No words were exchanged with our mouths, only telepathically. I made another effort to hug them, and they backed away. I told them I wanted to stay. They said I couldn't because it wasn't my time yet, and that I needed to go back. They told me goodbye while I protested. Then they began to slide backwards toward the brightest part of the light until they faded away. Then, while I was feeling disappointed, 
I could hear medical personnel and other people talking, but I could not see them. On the ambulance ride to the hospital, my vision returned, and I could see the lady technician who was working on me. That is the end of Sharon's experience. This you might describe as a quintessential near-death experience. I wanted to share it, though, for just one simple thing. When she finds herself heading towards the light and these three persons, she says the these black things, I, I gathered that they were silhouetted against the light and that's why they looked like black things, but these three things were her mother, her grandmother, and her dog. Now it's well known that people meet loved ones on the other side, but it is also extremely common for people to meet loved pets on the other side, sometimes even communicate with them. So if you're of any question of whether your cats or your dog will be there on the other side, don't worry, they will be there. And if, you're, if you were close to them, you can bet that they will find you. You don't have to go looking for them, though if you do, you'll find them. But it's, there's a good chance they will be there to meet you. They are capable of love. They are capable of connection. And though scientists are going to be arguing till the end of time about the level of consciousness of a, a dog, cat, bird, or whatever, I have yet to find any evidence in near-death experiences that they are anything but loved companions and, and fellow intelligent beings in this life as well as the next. So, don't worry. They'll be there. Okay, let's go on to Benedict. This is also on Enderf.org. Benedict says, At one moment, when I had stopped eating and drinking, I went out of my body and saw an amazing light. But the most amazing experience was the feeling. I had a huge feeling of love. Love, love, love. There are no human words to describe it. I had never before while in my body experienced what love is. I've been in love in my life, but it is so different and powerful to experience it while I was out of the body. My Buddhist friends were talking about unconditional love, and I was always trying to rationally understand what it meant or try to explain it. But at this moment, I was into it. It was so amazing that there are no words to describe this feeling and way of being. I was in a bubble. I am love. Just love. I remember it was even painful, as if my heart, body, and soul was not big enough for this love. It was too much love for my soul-slash-body. I was pure love. Next, I had a life review. I saw every single second of my life that went in front of me, from my birth until the last second previous to the experience. Events were like photos that someone would, somebody would flip in front of me. Each time that I was not in a state of unconditional love, the photo stopped and a voice asked me, What could you do to behave differently? When I felt what I should have done, the pictures continued. Everything went very quickly, or should I say that since there is no real time, it seemed to go very quickly. 
It was not a painful experience, as nobody was judging me. They were just asking me. I could also see the world through the lens of love. I could see people alive through this lens, why they were not perfect, why they were suffering, why one day they'd be so nasty with me, and what their path should be to become better. I was seeing people with different lights. Some were higher than others, with different colors. It was like a spiraling map with colors. The people I knew were positioned around me. The higher, nicer, and closer they were to me, these were the ones I loved the most. I never felt any judgment. I was looking at them with compassion and unconditional love. That is the end of Benedict's experience. And I'll just uh, briefly say that uh, uh, Benedict is a woman, and uh, I, she doesn't talk about her age at the time of her experience, but this did happen in 2009. So Benedict it describes beautifully the love that she feels there. It, it, it's absolutely um, out of this world. I mean, indescribable, ineffable is one of our favorite words in uh, near-death experience uh, literature. It's ineffable. There's no words for it. And she says that, but she just says it's, it was a huge feeling of love, 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 love in capital letters. It was, you know, she can't describe it. She even says, I've been in love in my life. And, and you know, people have described to me, Buddhist friends, talk about unconditional love, but I always, you know, tried to explain it away in some way or tried to, you know, rationalize it or, uh, and so forth. But then she says, now that I felt this perfect, unconditional love, she says, it's, it's more than rationalization. It is more than irrationalization. It, it was her existence. She describes it as if she is love. She says, I am love. I am just love. It reminds me of the scripture in the Bible. For those of you who are Christian, you'll be familiar with the scripture that says God is love. And it's it's kind of funny now, having come across these things, to hear the theological debates about what that means about God's composition, you know, the what it's made of and so forth. And and as it turns out, if I'm understanding these things right, at some level, we are all composed entirely of love. Now, what does that mean in terms of agency and the terrible things that sometimes mortals do to each other? I'm not clear. We're, we're learning as we go here, and we're in a, a very heavy proving ground, a very um, intense, hands-on school that is is very difficult, but we are beings of love, so comprised of love that uh, that when we are back in our native state, as Benedict is here, we sense that, and it and it it just blows the mind. It blows the whole soul body. She says it was too much love for my soul body. I, I was pure love. And so, you know, very beautiful description of the love that Benedict experiences. Okay, and then Benedict's life review is very cool, actually. 
she describes seeing it as if someone is showing these pictures, but she's seeing every second. She says, I saw every single second of my life that went in front of me. I, I'll just make a funny side note on that. I, I once read an experience and it was one of those ones where, you know, because once in a while I'll come across some that strike me as just insincere enough to, you know, that I question their validity, whether somebody made this up or something. This was one where I, I had a hard time even thinking that it could be real. But I think what they were doing is playing around with this question of, of every single second of life experience in a life review, because they, they go on to talk about, yeah, I spent, you know, so many hours of my life drinking out of a drinking fountain, you know, X number of weeks in, in the bathroom, um, and, you know, and so forth. And they, they'd like add it up to some level every single time that they, you know, uh, gargled some mouthwash and just, I mean, <laughs> I, I think they were being facetious, uh, taking the whole idea of every second of your life, come on people, seriously, every second you re-experienced, every single second. But that's what we keep hearing. And if you think about it, if it's all happening in a moment of time, or no time at all, or over eternity that is compressed in, you know, however that time uh, crunch works, what are the things that are going to stand out to you? Because when you look back on your life, you know very well that you spent, I don't know, X number of hours in the bathroom, drinking out of a drinking fountain or whatever uh, per day. You know that, but those aren't the things that you remember, unless something you know, particularly different happened. You don't remember those things. And as a spirit, you can maybe remember all those things, but you don't draw attention or focus to the things that don't stand out to you as significant in any way. And I'm kind of picturing she's having this every second of her life uh, flowing before her, but it's like there's stopping points. There's, And it, it may not be that at the time, she was drawn to it. Maybe she wasn't. But in this form, in this place where she can see and hear the whole context of everything that she ever experienced, everything that everybody experienced from her experience as she bumps into them on the street or, or talks to them at school or jokes around or whatever, she's seeing their perspective and what happens because of that. She's seeing all those ripple effects it's like they're being stopped, you know, as if, okay, new picture, and this one is drawing attention. And she even says that um, each time I was not in a state of unconditional love, the photo stopped, and a voice asked me, what could you have done differently? So it's as if she's listening to, or she's watching these, these you know, this her life flash before her eyes, whether in a sense of re-experiencing it or seeing it in some kind of, you know, 3D hologram or, or whatever. It, it doesn't really matter what she is seeing. At moments when she doesn't have this unconditional love, where she is probably able to see and understand why people are doing what they're doing and seeing it from this somewhat omniscient, loving standpoint, anytime she's not in that state and, and something isn't striking her, or at, or at least 
is not she's not getting the lesson out of it it seems the photo would stop or the moment would stop whatever that is called and a voice asked me what could you have what could you do to behave differently it's like in her life she didn't learn the lesson at the time so we're stopping to help her get that lesson now and she doesn't she says it was not a painful experience as nobody was judging me they were just asking me i could see the world through us through the lens of love now if we are going to experience those if we're going to have to relearn i hate to use the word relearn that's probably not fair if we're going to have to learn the lessons that we didn't learn in this life then how much more joyful and cool will be our experience if we can take the time and look at every situation from a position of unconditional love as best we can as best we can we're not perfect at it but we do the best we can to look at it from a situation of love and learn the lessons from it and think how we could have behaved differently or maybe even in the moment take 10 seconds how should i behave in this situation maybe we can learn a lot more faster because remember we are spirits who are here to learn we want to learn and i know that there is a bit of a discomfort um among many of us especially for those who are uncomfortable with religion and their focus on repentance and and you know avoiding sin and so forth there there's a discomfort with this idea of of repentance and and the idea of sin like you're doing something wrong and sinful and evil and so forth but if i'm understanding correctly what this is suggesting it is it seems to be that those things that we call sin whether or not based on our particular religion and so forth whether they actually are sin um the reasons that we do the things that we do matters because are we doing it out of love either for god for our our loved ones for ourselves think of it this way um let's just look at the sin of adultery okay um being unfaithful to one's spouse now some might look at that as one who you know is not feeling guilty for behaving in that way and and making that choice to to you know have somebody else outside of their marriage that they are having sexual relationship with they may be seeing it as they need the love of that person and that person is experiencing the love of them and therefore it is a loving exchange but if we could back out see the ripples see the the wider picture of what's going on here and we had somebody say what could you do to behave differently first off we might ask ourselves well why would i have behaved differently this was an act of love this was something that i did because i loved this individual and they loved me then we might look back and remember the love that we had for our spouse and the love that our spouse had for us and we could see how over time maybe that that love became strained because of our choices 
and because of potentially, you know, mental, psychological, emotional issues that came up because of life that happened. And in the moment when love was most deeply needed between the companionship, you sought it somewhere else, which, okay, you know, you were seeking love. I get that. But what about your spouse? What is their experience? Even if they never find out in their lifetime. Let's just put it that way so they're not, they're not experiencing the full betrayal, which would obviously be very hurtful. But even if they didn't experience that, how deeply loving connected can you be with your spouse when you are going against that trust that they have in you and the, and against the the love that you built together and and promised to each other and so forth and basically you know I'm not trying to be you know drive guilt into this but I'm just trying to give this big picture tore that love in half in order to share it with somebody else okay just looking at that from a backed off perspective as if a third person looking at that and feeling all the feelings for everyone involved you can see is that really an act of love or let's put it this way is the love that's extended to the new individual more powerful than the love that was promised and built between the couple and possibly the family. All things considered, how, what could you have done or what could you do to behave differently? It doesn't take calling it sin or evil in order to sense the lesson, the lesson of love, true, deep, pure, abiding, perfect love. Now, admittedly, as Benedict says, you're not going to experience the fullness of love while you're on, in life, while, while you're mortal. You're going to, to have a very deadened version of it. But that doesn't mean that it can't be there in a seed form. When we get to the other side and we can see everything, we can experience it in the full bloom. And we can also experience the death of a seed that could have gone into full bloom, or maybe did go into bloom and then was ended or killed. Again, this is not about guilt. It's about what Benedict said. What could you do to behave differently? That also brings up, you know, a lot of times when you talk about unconditional love and pure love and having a love for everyone, there is a danger that uh, people will take that to mean we should justify all actions or that we should justify or allow um, abusive behavior. But anyone who has been in a, an abusive situation will attest putting up with uh, abuse is not an act of love. It is actually a destruction of love 
for the individual being abused and the abuser. Think about it this way, and I'm not saying this to suggest that this is how it is, but rather to illustrate a, a point here, okay? If, in order to love one person, let's say there was somebody you wanted to love, that they required you to hate every other person, and you chose to love them and hate everyone else, is that an act of love? No. Obviously, it is destroying love in order to meet a, a demand upon you by someone who you would like to love. Now, one of the ways that you can detect, and this is the reason I bring that example up, one of the ways that you can detect whether something is actual love or whether it is something else, maybe something needy, maybe something codependent in some way, um, meeting some other demand outside of what love really is. But if you can ask yourself, or if you ask yourself, does my love for this person diminish my capacity to love others? And if the answer is yes, that it does diminish it, then it is not love that is actually fueling that relationship. It is something else. On the other hand, if you ask yourself, you know, does this love that I have for this person diminish or increase the love of those around me? And you can say, no, this actually increases my ability to love other people then you know for certainty that is real love. Think about any parent who loves their child. Does their loving their child diminish their love for their own parents or their siblings or their friends or other loved ones? Of course not. In fact, it increases it you know, in, to such a great measure that when somebody has a child, yes, they may have less time for you because you know being a parent takes time, but their capacity to actually experience and feel love is increased to a, an astounding degree. That's one of the reasons I suspect that grandparents and great-grandparents love so many people. With every person they have learned to love, with every relationship that has been true and real, their capacity to love increases. It's also why when you see sometimes a really curmudgeonly person who has no strong relationships, it's very difficult, it can be difficult to love them, simply because it's not that they're unlovable, it's that they have cut up themselves off from so many relationships that their capacity to love is kind of diminished. Now, don't think from that that it means that if I don't have, you know, a family relationship that I, I have to have children, I have to have this, I have to have that in order to, you know, extend love. That, that's not what I'm suggesting. Look at somebody like Mother Teresa. I mean, as far as I know, she was never married. She was never, she never had her own children that I'm aware of. But she had an infinite capacity to love as far as mortals go. She was about as loving a person as you can get. In fact, if you want to read a remarkable biography 
of her. Probably, I think the only authorized biography of her that uh, Mother Teresa herself gave permission for her to do, it's by Catherine Spinks. Uh, look up her biography of Mother Teresa. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. But the point is, with each person that Mother Teresa extended true love to, she was better able to extend love to others. Now, I bring this up in this context because one of the people that is most important for you to truly, genuinely love is yourself. If you cannot love yourself, you severely diminish your capacity to love other people. That's just a fact. Partly because it is the person with whom you are most intimately acquainted and the person that you are most at odds with all the time. If you can learn to love yourself, your capacity to love others extends way beyond what someone could do if they hate themselves but love other people. I mean, it's, it, there, there's almost no comparison. And just as we would not put up with relationships with others whom we know would suck love out of us, so we cannot allow those parts of our lives that suck love out of us to continue because if our own actions are sucking love out, then it diminishes our capacity to love ourselves. And without loving ourselves, we are severely diminished in our capacity to love others. I think, I, I, I suspect, that what we commonly call sin, those things that fall under the broad category of sin, and, you know, let's say rightfully so, okay, I suspect that those are the things that create a, a diminishment of love, that they actually diminish love. Because in the case of the unfaithful spouse, they are actually diminishing their capacity to love their family as fully because of the love that they have for this other person. It may not be that the other person is a love sucker, um, uh, you know, to suck love away from other people per se, but the situation creates that effect. So loving that person diminishes overall love. And because of that, that act can be considered what we might call sin. Now, whether it will be judged in the traditional religious sense uh, with fire and brimstone and, and so forth is beside the point, I think, here. I think what we really need to look at is, does this diminish love or does it increase it? And that's the thing that I think makes the difference. Because leaving an abusive relationship may increase your capacity to love everyone and anyone, and even the abuser, believe it or not. If there is something in your own life that you know is diminishing your capacity to love, eliminating that thing from your life will increase your capacity for love. Love is not a weakness. It is a strength. 
And it stands for itself. It stands for love. If something stands in the way of love, love steps in and says, no, I will not have this. I will not allow it to stay. And even those relationships that are broken off because of it, it increases their capacity for love by you doing so. Because when you back off and see that as if in a life review sort of way, you might see, thank heaven I left that, that boyfriend who was abusing me because he found himself a time of loneliness and realized his life is not right. While he was with me, perhaps he clung to that, that abusive behavior in order to feel some possession of love of some sort that he felt this need for. But my breaking it off and experiencing that loneliness, he was able to see in a broader perspective so that his next relationship, he did better. Obviously, that's the hope. It's up to the individual to choose that for themselves. But that's the point here, is that you yourself needs to make the choices for yourself. And that includes what kind of relationships you have and so forth. I apologize if this, uh, if this was a tangent that was uh, <laughs> distracting to the message. But I think it was worth sharing because the lessons, ah, oh, so cool. Okay, let's go on to the last one. This one is a very short one by Sierra. Sierra says, I had a cardiac arrest and was dead for 25 minutes. I remember going to a wooden house. There was a strong sun setting in the evening. I went into the house and was there was no furniture inside. There were no windows inside, just the outside frames of the windows. I floated upstairs and was going out the top window. Before I could leave, they asked me if I wanted to stay or go. I said I would stay for my children. I was told that if I came back, that my life would be very hard for years before it settled down. I didn't care because I wanted to go back for my sons. That is the end of Sierra's experience. And, and this one I, I kind of shared just because, you know, it's kind of cool. I mean, <laughs> she, you know, we hear about landscapes. Sometimes we hear about library of learning, or, you know, kind of column, large buildings with columns and so forth. This sounds like, you know, this wooden house, it's, it seems so simple. Just a lovely, simple setting. Because she describes there's no furniture, um, no windows, but that there is this strong sun setting in the evening. Just this beautiful sunset taking place. And she floats upstairs, so clearly she is in the spiritual state probably spiritual realm, and going out the top window. And I apologize, I think I said in you know my uh, explanation that there was no windows in this house. It, there was windows, just but that they were just open frames, so there's no glass inside, just the, just the frames of windows. Anyway, um, she floats upstairs into this top window. She says, before she could leave... And I don't, I'm, I'm interested here, curious, I guess you might say, if she is experiencing a barrier of sorts. It, it's very common to have some kind of barrier. It's sometimes something that appears to be a physical barrier. It's sometimes 
something that is like a, if I look up, then I, it's a point of no return. Or if I look into their face or, you know, there's something that's kind of a crossing this point and there's no turning back, which, you know, sometimes there actually turns out to be turning back, but uh, it may be much harder at that point. I don't know exactly, but I'm wondering if this is a barrier. She's about to go out the window of this beautiful house. Oh, I'm sorry, this simple wooden house, um, furnitureless house with these open windows. And, but she's asked by who? It, it, it doesn't actually say. Or was there people there? It, it doesn't actually say. Okay, so interesting. But she's asked, do you want to go back? Or do you want to go on? And she says she wants to stay for her children. That uh, if, you know, and they even tell her, if you go back, it's going to be pretty hard until things settle down. But she wants to go back to her earth life because to go back for her sons. It's kind of interesting to me how there seems to be such a polarization of those who are like, I've got to go back to my earth life versus those who are like, Please let me stay. I'm not sure what the difference is there. I have a suspicion that it depends on their sense in life of how important their task is on earth at the time. If for, ex for example, as a parent, if, if one has a sense of, I'm not even doing any good here, it doesn't even feel like I you know, am a good parent and they would probably be better off in foster care than with me. It could be that those people are more prone. And, and that's an extreme example. I'm not trying to say that anyone who wanted to stay felt that way. I don't know. But, um, but it could be that somebody in that situation is much more likely to say, please let me stay. Versus someone who is like, I am the parent, and I have got to be here to to see my ki kids through their life, and and I have got to be the one. If they feel that on a regular basis, it could be that they are more likely to feel that when they get to the other side, even with all the broader knowledge that they may be getting coming into them as they are on the other side. I don't know for sure. There are many who apparently should have that attitude of it's got to be you who don't really have that attitude even though they can absolutely fulfill their purpose without having that sense um, that maybe they should have that sense because when they get to the other side uh, people are like no you've got to go back and they're like but I want to stay they're like no <laughs> you've got to go back and and it's I, I don't know. It's not that one is better or worse than the other. I think there is great value in wanting to stay on the other side because, well, let's face it, we're all going to go there. We're all going to get there. But there is absolutely value, and in fact, probably better value, if, if, if better is a fair word for it, in wanting to come back to finish raising children or whatever it is that we're feeling driven to do while in our life. Um, just kind of an interesting, interesting thing how there seems to be such a polarization between those who really want to stay and those who really want to go back. I will say though, 
for those who really want to go back. I have yet to find one that wants to go back because they don't like the situation there. I mean, obviously with the you know small exception of some of the distressing near-death experiences um, where they're, they need to be saved from some kind of doom, um, but those are pretty rare. But, um, but for those who are arguing with an angel or with a loved one or with God, saying, I need to go back to be with my children. It's not because they don't want to be there. They absolutely do want to be there. But their sense of purpose is so strong that they insist on going back. And even when, as in Sierra's situation, um, she is, she knows that it's going to be tough for a while. I mean, she, you know, she dies of a cardiac arrest and was dead for 25 minutes, according to her first, the first sentence of her account. And then she's told by this, you know, they on the other side, that um, it's going to be very hard uh, before it settles down if you go back. But she's like, I don't care. I got to go back for my sons. That sense of purpose outweighs her fear of pain, fear of suffering, and so forth. It's just kind of interesting. Kind of interesting. I think our spirits recognize the value of those lessons, the value of our purpose, the value of the things that we seek to accomplish. Our our spirits really deeply sense that. And I think when we are in touch with our spirits, we sense that even here on this earth. And how do we do that? Well, it's a process, I think. But coming to know ourselves spiritually, it's, it's a journey worth taking. I recommend prayer. A lot of it. I recommend meditation. I recommend pausing many times throughout the day to just sense the potential for love. Sense what could be the loving thing. What could be the loving choice right now. What might I do to increase love? What might somebody else be feeling? And even when you sense a lot of negativity, which you will have times of sensing a lot of that. And it's hard, and it's kind of like, I don't really want to be here with all this negativity. But maybe that's the reason that you are there. Because in sensing that negativity, recognizing it for what it is, and finding a loving, patient way to turn that around is worth the effort. You are here for love because you are love. And with that, thank you again so much for listening. Chaz and I thank you for listening to Near Death Experience Podcast. You can reach out to your hosts by using Chaz, C-H-A-S, at ndepodcast.org and John, J-O-H-N, at ndepodcast.org. You can text or call the show at 970-633-2278. That's 970-NDE-CAST. Calling allows you to record your message in three-minute increments. If your message runs longer than three minutes, just call back and we can splice the segments together. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching NDE Podcast on those sites. And join our Facebook NDE Podcast community. 
Please leave feedback for the show on iTunes or via whatever application you use to listen to us. Doing so will allow our audience to grow and help spread the knowledge about spiritually transformative experiences to more listeners. You can help keep the show financially viable by purchasing Chaz's music or his book under the store link on the ndepodcast.org website or by going to patreon.com slash ndepodcast where you can make a one-time only donation or become an ongoing supporter. Whether you decide to write or call us or you choose to support the show either financially or by writing a review, or by listening and sharing us with others, we are so humbly thankful for you. We can't begin to express how much touching you spiritually means to us. Chaz and I thank you for joining us. We hope you keep listening and applying the understanding you gain from the show about your existence after this earthly life, so you have a better life right now. And to love one another. This is your host, John Messer, reminding you that it's all about attitude and gratitude, and our attitude should always be love.